0: From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare
1: Americana. Today's guest is Dr. Luke Pittman, co-founder of Collective Works and a primary care physician. If you are just a healer of patients, there are only so many patients you can see in a day.
0: But you are actually, in a sense, a healer of physicians because your job is to create an environment where these physicians can actually do what they are trained to do and be the best version of themselves. The DPC model decreases the volume, enhances quality, and then leaves the physician with time to go be a mother, a father, to go be human. That's that's a big deal. And now, here's your Healthcare Americana host, Christopher Habig.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare Americana, the podcast that explores what healthcare really means. Today's guest, Dr. Luke Pittman, co-founder of Collective Works, and himself, a primary care physician. Dr. Pittman, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, when we started talking about coming on the show, I jumped at the chance to, to interview you because I was really excited about this. want to get your take on it. Um, you are what I would consider an early career physician. And so I wanted to start off just by talking about some of your experiences, uh, fresh out of residency, uh, past few years. What have you been going through? Because you chose a route that was, by all measures and definitions, is not the standard residency to employer position. You kind of blaze your own trail. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and, and what that trail was for you.
0: Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, so I have a problem with just babbling. Hard to answer that question just to talk about the last two years because um, I, I was actually – raised in a family of physicians and so spent my life hearing their war stories about medicine, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, you know, kind of kind of knew from a young age that no matter what I did, medicine or not, I would not be satisfied with the status quo. Um, both my family members who are physicians are surgeons and both founded their own practices. Um both very well respected, both loved their patients and would die for their patients. You know, mm-hmm. that's sort of like,
1: they went the extra mile to make sure that they were taken care of. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And
0: really identified with their patients. Right. So for example, my grandfather would say that, and, and he was hilarious to talk to about this. Um, he would say that the, the patient is my patient and we use the hospital. Right. Which is very different than the way medicine is practiced nowadays where it's it's more like it's the systems or the hospital's patient Mm -hmm. and I'm taking care of the hospital's patient. Mm It was a very different attitude, very different way of seeing things. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I kind of grew up with that in my ear. Um, but I also thought I was gonna be a surgeon. It wasn't until medical school after my surgical rotations that I finally admitted to myself that that was not for me. It turns out that I like my patients more awake (laughs) than anything else. Um, it was kind of like the 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. of surgery was fantastic, right, when you're not in the OR. Then you get in the OR, and it just wasn't wasn't for me. Anyways, that gets to uh, medical school where I was kind of struggling with that, trying to figure out what do I want my career to look like and how do I want to spend my time. And the other really kind of important thing um, to mash into that is that in my heart of hearts, I do not need my patients to know my name to for me to feel good about what I'm doing. Um, I love people. I love spending time with people. I love meeting new people. And I love ne- learning new things, which I do when I'm practicing medicine. But at the same time, um, you know, there are, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going off a lot of transients. They're tra- yeah. whatever, That's all right. Yeah, whatever. tangent. Tangent. There it is. Um, it's all valuable. It's all connected to the same background story. So let me say it this way. I identify as being a healer first. I identify as being a physician second. Being a physician, my medical knowledge is a tool that I use in my mission of healing. Um, But the other thing is that I actually do also believe in business discipline. And frankly, I believe in profit motive, where it's not as simple as just show up, do the work, leave, be done, and like that's not going to work for me the entire rest of my life, right? So you know we were talking about, right? Some of my peers, Um
1: <clears throat> right? Well, it sounds like it, there was a couple of things you mentioned there. I just want to call out real quick. You mentioned being a, he- a healer first and a physician second. It's almost right. like this notion that we hear a lot within DPC of you know medicine is a calling, it's not a career, right? Yes, there are highly paid, highly skilled, incredibly. Uh, experienced individuals practicing medicine and rightfully so our best and brightest of society. Right. But to hear that and to talk to other physicians who say, oh, are, are you a doctor just because you want to get rich? The answer is going to be no, <laughs> it's going to be, I'm trying to help <laughs> people here, man. Let's, 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 uh, 20 let's, years, 30 years let's establish maybe. that one. Let's establish that one first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's
0: absolutely not true. Yeah. That's totally false. Um, now I will say that the benefit of going into medicine is that there's a track to stability. So, which, which also gets the DPC, right? Because the thing is that if you're going to decide that you want to go into medicine, you don't wake up one day and, and then go to the clinic and go get a job at the clinic, right? right? You wake up one day and then you decide that you're going to spend 10 years moving that direction. And then you actually have to go execute on those 10 years. Mm-hmm. But the thing about those 10 years is that it's scripted and it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, but there's something safe about a script.
1: Interesting. You know?
0: there's, um, you have a path to follow. Exactly. Yeah. You follow the path. Like, you know, what classes you need to take, you know, what grades you need to, to get, you know, what, you know, tests you need to take and when you need to take it and the different tools that you can use to help you do better on those tests, mm-hmm. you know, who needs to write you a letter and what that letter needs to say, all these different things, right? You're just jumping through hoops for 10 years essentially. Um, but there's a script and the challenge is staying on script and operating on that script. Well, because of that, you know, to get to the DPC stuff too and and peers is that when people get to the end of residency <laughs> and you've done that 10 years, your personality doesn't really change, right? So the same personality that decided I'm going to go play a script for 10 years doesn't get to the end of 10 years and be like, okay, now I'm gonna go play off script,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Which is why when I look at DPC compared to like a standard family practice situation, unless you, there's something in you that like absolutely has to have a panel of 1500 patients. It just does not make any sense like that. Mm -hmm. It, it just doesn't add up at all to me when I, when I look at it, um, except that there's an incredible, incredible psychological barrier when it comes to, okay, now you gotta, you know, I thought that I was moving in this direction towards this practice, this way of thinking, this way of operating, this way of doing work that I was trained to do as well. And now I got to jump over the fence and I got to go think differently. I got to go do all these things differently. And because I haven't had exposure to this for very long from a conservative perspective, I can't, I just, it's harder for me to believe that, you know, the the finances of the DPC work, that the stresses of DPC are any different, et cetera, et cetera. And so mm-hmm. you have these professionals again, who are used to following a script and now we're asking them to come off script to go to, towards DPC. It doesn't make It's hard for them to do that right me however i feel like it it makes a ton of sense right
1: well yeah yeah and that's a that's a good little um kind of segue um because when you were coming out of residency and you were telling your peers and your classmates you know i'm probably not gonna sign that five-year or worse contract with some hospital system what was your reaction to that you know you mentioned that you were following a script for 10 years and also at the end of that the script ends right for right. you at least a lot of other people that you knew uh, in the trenches there kept on that script. Right. What was different? What are those conversations like?
0: Right. So it's funny. I had, I had in residency, I had eight other classmates, one other besides myself, hadn't signed a, a contract after finishing residency. So that's two out of how many? Two out of, of nine, which even then that, that ratio is incredibly unusual. She also happens to have an MBA. She also happens to be doing business stuff too. Um, we've known each other for a really long time. And so are more equally yoked to we'll put it that way. But, um, for the others and the class that was ahead of me in the class that came after me, it was, they would, they would come to me very stressed out. They'd be like, Luke, what are you doing? What are you doing? Luke? You know, what, what are you like? You're going to sign a contract. Where are you going to work? What, you know, like, I like, I'm so concerned for you. And I'm like, I'm telling you right now, I'm like starting to sweat right now. I can feel it right now. Just even imagining this because I'm telling you, I am so concerned for them you have flashbacks. Yeah, I yeah. am. Like, I'm getting very anxious right now, even thinking about the concept of signing a contract yeah. to work somebody for three years, which, again, we've established that people oftentimes follow the script. So, you sign a contract for three years. You don't sign the contract for three years and think, like, okay, after three years, I'm going to skip town and go do something else, right? Most of those people who sign a contract for three years end up there for 30, right? Like, that's old school medicine. That's all what know. you do. Yeah, that's yeah, all I know. And so, I'm thinking, you're going to sign a three year contract. But a lot of you are going to end up practicing the exact same place for 30 years, 9 to 5, maybe 8 to 5 for the entire rest of your life. And then you're going to spend 7 to 9 o'clock after the kids go to bed, or maybe 7 to 10, writing notes about the patients that you saw all day. And you're going to do this over and over and over and over again for 30 years. I'm like, I I can't do that. Hmm. That's not my blood or my bones. I, I just can't. There's no way. So I'm like, can you handle that? Like, are you sure you're comfortable doing what you're doing? You're going to go sign that
1: contract and be okay with that? Because I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Wow. So they were looking at you like you were nuts and you're looking at them like
0: they're nuts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was kind of a good old fashioned Western standoff. (laughs) We both cared about each other. Right. So it's like we we'd have these conversations over and over again. And, you know, every once in a while I'd have updates for people about different things I was considering doing or whatnot. But um, so I did not sign a contract and. The other funny thing is the difference between faculty and my resident peers um, where the faculty who knew me best, they're kind of like, he'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. He'll figure it out. You know, he'll get through. I just really hope that he actually practices a little bit. Cause I was even considering not practicing at all. Wow. And you know, to be fair, it, I understand that perspective because they're there to train physicians who are healers and they've done this for years and years and years and they love what they do. And so of course they want other people to love what they do.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And they also don't completely understand the way that I see the world or what it is that I really care about or the other tools that I can imagine using that are not necessarily medicine proper. So they're more like, Hey, I hope he does anything clinical, but whether he does or he doesn't, I know that he'll figure it out. The faculty who didn't know me very well just they didn't have a box to put me in. It just didn't There's this like, weird guy over here and we're not really sure what to do. Yeah, it's, it's like him. he's just kind of a fun time.
1: Was there <laughs> a fun time? We could dive into that a little bit deeper, but I don't I don't want to know what happened at at the social function. Was there in your mind, was there almost a bias um, against primary care? Or did you ever have conversations of, well, let's, let's push you into specialties. You're smart enough. Why are you going primary care? Anything like that that you came across?
0: Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. There's, there are very opposite ends of the spectrum here where I know people who are not in primary care but just absolutely respect primary care so much. And on some level, I understand that, right? Because a colon rectal surgeon you know, needs to know something about diabetes, but they're going to know about diabetes and labor and delivery and take, you know, everything from kid just born or not born yet to, you know, 110 year old patient and everything in between. Like there's incredible amounts of breadth there that uh subspecialist and specialists makes them uncomfortable um, thinking that you could potentially be responsible for so much. Mm-hmm. Um, now my my point to that is a great, a great family physician a good family physician knows a lot. A great family physician knows their boundaries um, and knows when they need to get other people involved. Right. So the, back to the spectrum, though, the other end of the spectrum is a degree of um, sometimes frank disrespect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if we medicine is very hierarchical and if we lined up the specialties based on hierarchy, old school medicine would not favor family medicine. So you have let's this, just, it, it's
1: some kind of professional pecking order yeah. where you have some of the most important members of that. If medicine's a pyramid, I, I would say that the bottom of that pyramid is supported by the generalists, by the primary care physicians. Right. And that's the first entrance of anybody who needs, needs healing. Right. So that's the other interesting
0: thing is that oftentimes we are first line, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting, too, when you consider the the medicine that I practice in clinic and the patients that I see relative to what's actually taught. Um, you've, I assume you've heard the concept of horses and zebras, right? Medical diagnoses. Um, so when you hear, I have when, not, but so I would love way. to learn. Let's put it this way, right? If you heard hoof prints right now, you would think... <laughs> horses. Horses, right? In medical school, you learn about zebras, right?
1: Interesting. Now if you're yeah. in Africa,
0: it's a different story. Your hoof beats and you yeah, should think so about situational zepers. awareness. Right. And where I practice, it's about horses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And, um, it's, I would, I would argue that in academia that is not appreciated as, as much as it, as it could, or it should be, um, where out in the community where real life is happening and where real physicians are taking care of real life patients. Um, you know, there's, you know, how do I say this? It's just, is not the same as like a tertiary care center where a lot of training is occurring, um, where you are because like in Indiana, for example, um, you have hospitals across the state, of course, but when things get really complicated, or really dangerous, really severe, a lot of those patients get sent into Indianapolis to tertiary care centers. Mm-hmm. So when you're training in the tertiary care center, abnormal becomes your normal,
1: right? You see a wide range of complex right, issues. Right, and more that, severe, stuff like that. Gotcha. Right. Versus no no like, type of routine. It's You get the worst of the worst, essentially.
0: Right, versus mm-hmm. out in the community, medicine is,
1: I mean, you see stuff like
0: that, but it's just not, the it prevalence fits, is not as much. Right. right. So
1: you might, you might see a lot of, oh, farm injuries versus gunshot wounds.
0: Fair, right? Or, for example, if a patient has a cough, they probably have an upper respiratory viral infection, not lung cancer. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. working at a tertiary care center, somebody's got a cough. Yeah. probably Because so, lung cancer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, understandable. Understandable. And, and that is an absolutely fascinating point because talking about the hierarchy of, um, you know, in medical schools, and we share a lot about, um, well, th- there's a physician shortage and what are we doing about that? And so it's almost like, well, yes, it, but it's not just because our best and brightest in med school aren't wanting to go into primary care. You mentioned a little earlier, it's, it's tough to do and see that uh, insurance laden um, kind of a practice. There's a lot of barriers there, and if you're even discouraged from going into primary care because there's this stigma about it, I mean, those are pretty significant barriers to somebody in their early 20s, mid 20s, looking to do this the rest of their life. I mean, it's once you're a doctor, I mean, you're almost always a doctor. I know we hear a lot of people who are retiring way too early or going off and being motorcycle mechanics, which is which is tragic. (laughs) But those are real life stories. You know, we hope someone's in medicine for 30 years in a hospital system or whatever makes them happy. But we're just not seeing that a lot. Um, Is that an issue uh, in your mind?
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so it's it's interesting too when you consider the career arc of in medicine um where you know you identify me as being an early or young physician, which is very true. I've been out of residency for about two years now I'm still learning i'm still growing I'm still becoming better at my art if you will um the best the, the like pinnacle of of where a physician is at their very best, I would argue is later than most careers mm-hmm. um, because of the training that occurs and the ongoing learning that that, it, that happens the rest of your life, right? But there's also in that arc a downside in that arc, right, where people start losing track of new technologies and new medicines and new all kinds of other fun things.
1: Sure. You become so, in ha- you become ingrained in your habits, essentially. Right,
0: exactly. So there is an arc to this, but the arc is shifted further right on the timescale. Well, the problem is I, I would argue that that arc is running into – where you're at your best in your late forties, fifties, maybe early sixties, and I would argue in your fifties, right? Go talk to those physicians about what they think about medical record systems and insurance companies, (laughs) right? Which for the record are not the only things to blame about why healthcare is so (laughs) jacked up right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I'm just saying, go talk to a 50-year-old physician about medical record systems and insurance companies, right? You're going to be in that conversation for a while. Yes, you are. (laughs) Yeah, you are. And then ask them about the good old days. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be there any longer. Anyways, so that's a problem because when our physicians are at their best, these are the same physicians who are leaving. Mm -hmm. It's a problem, right? So we don't even have enough of them anyways. And they're leaving earlier than they used to leave because of all these different forces. And they don't need to put up with it. Right, because financially they've done well enough. Oftentimes, not always. Right, there are horror stories about. Oh yeah. You know. Yep. Bad financial decisions. Finances. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but oftentimes they can actually afford to move on, um, which for them I say good for you, good for you. But for our system and for our people, for the population, that's a problem, right? Because we we do have a physician shortage. That's mm-hmm. um, getting worse.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we hear about physician shortages and it's like, well, of course it is because not everybody can go be a physician. That's why there's a shortage. It's a supply and demand type of a situation. Population's increasing. Not everybody can be a physician plus other barriers like we kind of talked about. But I want to ask you real kind of quick and we can we can move on from this. But you mentioned that if somebody is at their best I mean, think about the decades of knowledge that that person has and all of a sudden they shut their practice down which is basically the MO of any type of practice buyout right now, you just kind of disappear. A lot of groups are saying, "Well, nope, That sorry. We don't know where that doctor went. And he's just gone. (laughs) What kind of effect does that have on, on you and your peers and your profession? When somebody with three, four decades of expertise at the top of their game, essentially just vanishes. Where does that knowledge go? What happens there?
0: Yeah, um, I don't have a quick answer um, for that. I don't even know if I have a good long answer for that. It's it's not a simple question. I, I would say from my perspective, it hurts to see physicians in bad situations. It's sad um, for me. It's um, sad for all of us because for the most part, they care, right? Like I really, really do actually believe that people go into medicine and not just physicians, people who go into healthcare genuinely care about the people who are being served genuinely care about enhancing quality of life genuinely care about prolonging life right Mm -hmm. like this is this is a fight that we know that we're gonna lose but it's a fight worth fighting Mm -hmm. and we know this and in our hearts that's generally Mm -hmm. also what we're pursuing but then you go and you live real life and you go fight that fight you get worn out and you get tired and sometimes it's hard to remember why you're there in the first place when you're you know picking up a phone staying on call for 30 minutes to do a peer-to-peer that's obvious, mm-hmm. you No, know? it's It's sad. But the other thing that's sad is physicians who don't quit who are still just as upset, right? That's also depressing and discouraging um, because it's like that's not who I want to be, right? Honestly, I think that's part of the reason why I couldn't imagine myself doing this for 30 years is mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be in my sixties or seventies thinking that I spent, like I, re- I already traded a decade of my life to this profession. You know, I traded 20, you know, my twenties mm-hmm. to get a medical degree. Right.
1: That's a good decade. <laughs> you know, 20s is, you know, yeah, like for those, those out there that remember their twenties. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Like those, that's a lot to trade
0: and um, I can't imagine trading another three of those thinking
1: that like, I'm going to get to the end and just be mad as well. Mm-hmm. Like, no, just bitter. And yeah, mm-hmm. so that interesting, that, because that's kind of going back to what we talked about before was, so you have a lot of peers who are now in year two, year three of their contracts that they signed. Are they starting to exhibit a little bit of those symptoms that you see from, I know the buzzword around is, is burnout, but I think it's something more severe than than the word burnout. The term yeah. burnout can describe are they starting to exhibit any type of symptoms of that? Or are they coming back and say, holy cow, Luke, you were right. I was, uh, you know, I was deceived.
0: Well, I say the funny thing is that you see them, you actually hear them. What they start talking about is recurring revenue. That's scary. No, this is what they start talking about, but not necessarily from their medical practice. Right? So what happens is after you finish residency, you experience a little bit of a high because now you're out on your own. You're a little bit scared, but you also really jazzed. And then you get first real paycheck. And then you're like, booyah, <laughs> this is awesome. And yeah. you start paying down your debt, start making progress on that. And then you start thinking about other things like a house, cars, stuff like these things. But then you start thinking, am I really going to do this forever? And <laughs> then you have to think, okay, do I really want that house? Do I really want that car? How am I managing this debt? You know, what does my family's operating budget look like? And if I were ever to quit or transition my, my career, Mm -hmm. then what does that mean about my finances and where else am I going to go get this same type of salary, which is what I'm personally working through right now, Mm -hmm. right? Is figuring out if I'm not going to practice forever, how else am I going to, you know, put a roof over my kids' heads? How else am I going to feed my family? Sure. I've had this conversation many times with multiples of my peers who are now like, oh, that thing that you used to try to talk to me about, Luke, is called money. Can we have that conversation now? Let's, yeah, let's have that conversation. <laughs> like, let's talk about different investment vehicles. Let's talk about what else are you doing with the rest of your time? Are you, you know, do you want to get involved in an advisory board for a startup company? Do you want to get involved with real estate? Do you want to get involved with XYZ, different types of investments? Mm-hmm. Um, and now that they're kind of, you know, took the blinders off now that they're through the training and have taken some time to kind of calm down and kind of recalibrate after the training is done over a few years, they're starting to have those conversations and think about, okay, what else am I doing Mm -hmm. that is generating income such that when the time comes, I can leave, which may not be in 30 years. That may be in five or 10 years for some of these physicians.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting concept too, because, you know, while personally I always advocate for, alternative revenue streams and and income streams. Um, It's interesting that physicians who are trained to be physicians have such a collapsed timeline, as I'm going to call it. They're not looking this and saying, I'm going to grow old being this. I'm going to be that Norman Rockwell gray haired physician, you know, making house calls. It's just carrying my little, my little black bag around, you know, (laughs) I don't know if that, that, that exists in some circles. Sure, you know sure, but certainly does. Um, it's interesting to see that nobody's really planning on being a physician that long and taking it that far is that what well, well i mean obviously i wouldn't
0: say nobody i have found that people very much entertain the idea of what if i didn't have to do this i had a peer in residency who literally said to me if i didn't have debt i would quit right now
1: well that's sad that is sad that's sad and that's that's scary from my perspective not being a medical professional maybe i should have said that out loud but (laughs) we hear it a lot we definitely definitely hear it a lot and heck that's one reason why we started freedom health works was Um. you know my uh my physician uh my mom's a physician and when we had a family member to get sick and we talked about this on previous episodes i'm like hey what what am i supposed to do if i can't trust the care and i don't have an advocate in the hospital setting She just looked at me and deadpanned don't get sick and she was very serious and she has a good sense of humor, but at that point in time not joking around. So it is scary when you have, like you said, the best and the brightest in that career trajectory leaving. If you have, for lack of a better term, some of the, the physicians who are out of residency, but learning from those individuals, those late mid to late year physicians, if they're already looking for the door or they're in it for the wrong reasons, and you're not just dealing with an assembly line of widgets. You know, we hear in population health a lot that population health is always the big buzzword. And we say, you know what? We don't really like that term because these are human beings. Everybody's a little bit different. And you can't just treat it like an assembly line. And that gets scary once you start tossing out numbers like that. But yeah, back to your comment. Um, Yeah, If you have young physicians who are just no longer in it and their complete motivation, the reason why they went to medical school in the first place and studied their butts off to get to that, they say, you know, it's not worth it anymore. Yeah. Something's causing that. Something's well, driving so
0: it. So an- another interesting factor there is, you know, older physicians say they don't make them like they used to. I'm sorry to my age group of physicians, but I would argue that that is true. It may depend on the specialty. It may depend on the program that you went through. But in general, I think that's true where, again, it's like old school. They went pretty crazy. And they had to go through things that we did not have to go through just because of our restrictions alone. Now, again, sometimes those restrictions are, are respected and sometimes they're not. Sometimes people break those rules. But um, <clears throat> that also comes with a different sense of what is our profession and who am I, right? Um, I may be a little bit more flippant than some people, but I think of, to be a physician is is like a, a hat I can put on and put off, right? Mm-hmm. My grandfather would kill me for talking like that, right? It's not at all how he saw himself.
1: Do you think that's because uh, some of those older generation physicians knew that there was a different way of practicing medicine that isn't exactly prevalent these days? And I'm kind of almost about to say direct primary care, but it wasn't quite that back in the 70s and 80s before insurance became prevalent. So
0: I'll say this way. We used to be employers. Now we're employees. I like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting, too, because I have this conversation with my peers about, okay, you understand you're an employee. When you're an employee, you get a manager when you get a manager they manage and when they manage they manage what they know they manage what they can measure so they try to measure you
1: they have targets they have numbers they have right. production right. productivity exactly so don't RVUs. be surprised that they're having that conversation with you
0: yeah. now all the things that they're telling you you should be doing may not necessarily be true and you got to make that decision about when do you actually listen to them versus when do you just do what you need to do because <laughs> you know it's right because you have doctor. to do that right but we kind of i'm over generalizing but as a profession I would argue that we allowed this to happen on some level. We did it to ourselves because it was good enough um, that our predecessors didn't have to fight the battles that we now have to fight. No, they fought battles, right? They worked, they worked the tails off, but I think that some things slipped under the radar that we're now dealing with the consequences of. Mm -hmm. And now we have a lot of physicians who trade the, I'm gonna get really harsh, really fast, okay? There's a big difference to me between being a professional and being a technician, right? Okay,
1: so yeah. talk about that a little bit. A
0: professional owns their craft. A professional, to me, sets the standards for their profession, right? A professional, it's a totally different standard than to say, like, I'm a technician, where you can just plug and play one technician replace that technician with another technician versus a professional. I I don't feel that that is necessarily completely as true. In my mind see a professional as owning their, their profession, not just in fact owning, but in, in mentality. Sure. Owning their craft more so. Sure. And it's almost, and,
1: it's almost like this, if I'm hearing you right, it's almost this commoditization of physicians yeah, where yes, you, this moment, yeah. you look at an insurance company, you have a list of names, you say, you can go see these people. Right. Same with referrals, right? They say that all everybody in a white coat's the exact same, and that's the message they want to leave you with, right? Which, on some level, from a business business perspective, I understand
0: that pressure, but from a professional level, that's concerning to me. Mm-hmm. But on you know, part of that is that as physicians, we're now willing to accept these ridiculous contracts to go work for the man mm-hmm. um, to get managed, so that we can have security in our pay, and so that we can have some amount of When We get vacation time, right? Like I take vacation time. My grandfather did not take vacation time the way I take vacation time. He took vacation time, but not the way I do it Um, because I'm an employee. Right. Right. At least in this realm of my life. Yeah. And so like, there's something that is nice about that. Right. Like I clock out. Right. My grandfather didn't clock out.
1: We have conversations that, that, um, you know, one of the biggest fallacies of America today is that a paycheck is security. (laughs) That paycheck can stop tomorrow. And then what?
0: How secure is that? Let's talk about the concept of control. That's like a whole other series of podcasts.
1: Oh, yeah. We (laughs) we can go down that line. But like you said, I love that line that, you know, doctors used to be employers. Yeah, we used to. I mean, that is so powerful because the independent practice that could pop up in a small rural town that you just don't have anymore. So now I got to ask, as we wind down here, where does it go? Where does it go from here? How do we turn this thing
0: around? Oh, man. So. Another concept we didn't talk about was the concept of physician of physicians, right? If, if you are just a healer of patients, you can take care of patients. You're, there are only so many patients you can see in a day. But you are actually, in a sense, a healer of physicians, right? Because you, your job is to create an environment where these physicians can actually do what they are trained to do and be the best version of themselves. Where, um, paradoxically, you're the, the DPC model decreases the volume, enhances quality, um, and then leaves a physician with time to go be human, right? To go be a mother, a father, um, maybe even, maybe a side hustle of other investments. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that's, that's a big deal. And I think that now I will say one of my problems with DPC. I don't know, you don't want to trash DPC, but one of my one of the problems with DPC is that when I consider all of America needs care, um, there are some people who cannot afford DPC. And so I'll be interested to see how that ends up playing out. Um, I'll be really interested to see how um, nurse practitioners and phys- physician assistants may ever get in, um, you know, to what extent do they get included in DPC or not? Because I do think that um, APPs, um, are very important to managing this care shortage that we have or provider shortage. If DPC moves the needle too much away from high volume, family practice um, clinics, you know, I'm curious about on a macro level, what could that mean for the general population? Um, but when I look at physician health, when I look at burnout and just sanity, when I look at humanness and just the soul of these physicians, dpc makes a ton of sense to me Mm -hmm.
1: um i do agree with you on on some level there obviously um it would be interesting to see as dpc continues to take off what is that lag of medical schools and students you know that you know imagine yourself 10 years ago coming into this and saying yes i'm going to go into primary care i'm a dpc position if this model can attract higher numbers into primary care from medical schools. That's interesting. We could we could really see this model continue to grow. That's really interesting. And But it'd be interesting what that lag is. So you're saying increase the
0: total number of providers in primary care, not just take away from the people who are going to be primary care providers. There's
1: a lot of interest in medical schools right now around DPC. And then they tend to forget about it in residencies, obviously, because with- hospitals don't want them going into DPC. and. That's kind of who controls some of the residencies at this point,
0: right? And Medicare, the number of residencies at
1: least, yeah, exactly, set to '90s standards. But um, <laughs> we'd we'll have to have you back to talk about really dive into that one because that is a that is a fascinating, fascinating subject here. But you know, before we wrap up, um, wanted to give you a chance to talk about a little bit about your activity in Collective Works. We mentioned that you do some investment. You look at some other um, type of type of companies, type of industries out there. So you put your you put your physician hat on and you vet these. So what kind of work are you doing uh, with your company and your partners right now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So with collective works, we support entrepreneurs and investors focused on social problems as a physician partner to our team. I of course focus more on healthcare than anything else. Um, We're not doing device. We're not doing pharma. We're more thinking about like healthcare, it essentially anything that might influence access um, to healthcare or prevention is more where we fit and We believe in a marriage between mission, but also again, business discipline, um, where those two things need to be married, um, where it needs to be both financially and in mission worth charging the fortress, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, we support entrepreneurs, and investors, a variety of different projects that we're working on. Um, one with a nonprofit here in town, that's, uh, I would consider a reputable subject matter expertise or subject matter expert, um, that we're helping with a particular problem where the question is, should we actually take, if we can solve this problem for you, should we actually launch this into a separate for profit joint venture and go solve this problem for a bunch of other people who are like you, which turns out there's about 650 of them across the nation. So we're suspicious that there really is a market for this. And, um, but again, the beautiful thing is that this organization in particular, they're serving Medicaid waiver patients um, who are the same patients I would be seeing in my clinic anyways. But like I said earlier, I don't need my patients to know my name to know that I did a good job. Mm-hmm. And so I helped this company do a good job ex- and increase their revenue, help them hire on more people to serve these patients better. These patients get higher quality services, stay out of the hospital, stay out of EDs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's like, boom, there's a win. So keep it right? at the primary care level. and Yeah, it's very much a healthcare problem, but it's also a business problem sure. where – you know, I sit and talk to my again my peers about this, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> <Mine>. <laughs> anyway, so
1: we're we're working on it, making nice. forward
0: progress, and having a good time with it.
1: Nice, fantastic. If anybody out there listening uh, wants to learn more about Collective Works or you, what's the best way to contact uh, you or learn more about the company? Yeah, me would be Luke at CollectiveWorks Dr. Luke Pittman, appreciate your time today, and uh, that's an interesting conversation we had. And, we might have to extend an invite back to you to, to touch upon a little bit more of this stuff because i think we could put some interesting discussions together good. i think that means i didn't waste your time absolutely <laughs> not so once again thanks for thanks for dropping by the studio tonight yeah good to be here thanks for having me chris welcome if anybody out there wants to learn more about direct primary care visit freedomhealthworks.com don't forget to share all healthcare americana episodes and rate us like us Uh, Again, share with all your friends and family. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at freedomhealthworks.com.